Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. I'm really looking forward to today's interview with filmmaker and author Damian Lewis about his new book, Agent Josephine, American Beauty, French Hero, British Spy. It's a blockbuster true story about Josephine Baker, a huge stage celebrity for decades in Europe who served French and British intelligence during World War II. Using her cover as a popular singer and actress while she used her contacts, which included diplomats, heads of state, and foreign ministers, to glean information which proved highly valuable to Allied intelligence. This story is so good that it's been optioned for a TV series. But I don't want to give up too much, which is why we have Damien Lewis with us today. Damien, this story is a blockbuster. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. That was a fantastic introduction. Can you share some of your background first and then jump into how you were inspired to cover Josephine Baker's story? Sure. Um, so I spent 20 years um, reporting from um, dangerous parts of the world as, as, as a large as a war reporter, really a war and conflict reporter, though mm-hmm. I tended to focus on, you know, civilian suffering, that kind of side of war. Um, and that was TV uh, largely, although I was also reporting for newspapers, mainly TV. So for the BBC and CNN and other broadcasters. Um, and then I wrote my first book about 15 years ago. And I guess because of that background, my background in conflict and war, I've tended to pretty much exclusively focus on those kind of stories or all related stories. Um, and increasingly, I've had a real interest and and I've written a lot of books based in World War Two, um, which, of course, was, you could argue, the greatest struggle for freedom against oppression um, you know, in, in 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 our time, and I first came to Josephine Baker's story. It came to my notice about ten years ago, uh, which was just a mention. And of course, I knew about her as a, as a global superstar. What I didn't know and couldn't understand or conceive of was that she had played this clandestine role in the war as a spy. It was just a very brief mention, and I wondered how on earth somebody with such an incredibly high profile she was the most photographed woman before the war she was a truly global superstar i just wondered how someone of that profile and such instant recognizability you know um could have served a clandestine role been a warrior of the shadows during the second world war so that was really the kind of trigger that got me interested and the more i looked into it the more i started to realize what an incredible story this was and how little known it was and, and how it really needed to be told. She was a she was a huge star. I first came across her name when I was when I did a story on Jacques Boulard. Are you familiar uh-huh. with him and his his I'm history? Not, no, no. To be as brief as I can, he was an, a, a young American black man who ran away from a very a bad situation as a young man uh, in the in the states. His father had told him, "Son, if you ever have to leave, go to Paris because there, he said, people will treat us equally." Uh-huh. Uh, and get and get yourself an education. In a nutshell, the boy did exactly that when he was 15. Hopped on a German freighter, learned a little German along the way, ended up in Glasgow, then made his way to Paris, became a nightclub owner, married a wealthy French socialite, a white girl, owned his own club, and British, uh, I'm sorry, French intelligence got in touch with him and said, "Listen, because you own a club, we've got a lot of German agents in Paris. We'd like you to provide information for us." So within the confines of that incredible story, which maybe you'll do someday because that's right, right up your alley, he comes across, uh, he comes across Josephine Baker, uh-huh. and in the capacity of a spy, he knows he knows who she is, and that's how I first learned of her. Uh, and you're that's, right; I mean, she was huge. She was a big, big, big celebrity. Absolutely. How yeah. did you find information on her? Because uh, because of the fact that the espionage business is a very closed business. And what were your best sources of information as you started to dig into her life? Yeah, I mean, that was that was really one of the major challenges. In fact, you've hit the nail on the head as to why her story remains so little told. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, intelligence agents back then in the Second World War and prior to the Second War, or, or, and even today, of course, um, they are generally not supposed to um, talk about or write about uh, their work. Um, it's interesting. Um you know, resistance work was different. You know, fighting the Nazis was one thing, you know, with, with, with resistance as guerrilla fighters with weapons and explosives. There were lots of books written about that and people spoke quite freely about it. But those who served 
in the clandestine role, the War of the Shadows, they were supposed to, to wait decades, if at all, to speak about their wartime work. And so Josephine actually hardly ever spoke in any detail about her wartime role. I mean, she, whenever she was asked post-war, you know, what was the, what, what's the thing in your life you're most proud of? It's, it's striking, and I was struck by this, that she would always say the war years and what we achieved during the war, defeating Nazism. But she would never really go into any detail. Hmm. And the reason for that is the secrecy. So uh, the sources were, thankfully, um, her espionage partner during the war, uh, Jacques Abte, Captain Jacques Abte of the Dizien Bureau. So the Dizien Bureau was the French counterintelligence service, the French spy hunters, those tasked to counter German espionage, especially the Abwe, the German Foreign Intelligence Service. So Jacques Abte was her, her spine partner throughout the war, her, her kind of rock. And, and indeed, he, you know, he was her, her, her teacher to start with. But towards the end of the war, she kind of became the spy master and ended up being his teacher. But Jacques Abte, uh, fascinating character. She was surrounded by fascinating characters. And Jacques Abte was something of a maverick. I've got huge admiration for him. And, and some years after the war, Jacques Abte not only wrote his own version of his and Josephine's story, but he told that story to Colonel Remy, real name Gilbert Renault. And Colonel Remy was a standout resistance hero of the war, um, wrote, ran the, the, the Conflit de Notre Dame, this huge resistance network during the war, and wrote extensively about it after the war. And in the 60s, Jacques Abte told Colonel Remy their story, and he wrote it up too. So those are two kind of primary sources. And then building on that, you know, we're extremely fortunate in that, you know, the French government, and they deserve huge credit for this, released some, not all, of their World War II intelligence files concerning Josephine Baker and Jacques Abte and Colonel Paul Pellol, the head of the German desk in, in the Deuxième Bureau. These were the key players uh, in her story. And that material is absolutely crucial. I mean, that that is the... You know, that's the gold dust because that's that that's the documents from the war which which pertain to everything that she was involved in. And then you have other layers of 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 fantastic, um, you know, prime evidence. So, for example, I'm just trying to give you some highlights. Um, the secret intelligence, British secret intelligence service spymaster, an extraordinary character, uh, you know, uh, Commander Wilfred Biffy Dunderdale, yeah. who was this who was this actual he was a friend of uh, Ian Fleming the author of James Bond, the creator of the James Bond series. He was a friend of his during the war. They served together, together as agents. And Dunderdale is, 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 is a role model for, 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 for Bond. But Dunderdale also, prior to the war, had huge contact and had this incredible partnership with the Dizien Bureau, the French counter-espionage service, with, with the key characters, uh, Jacques Abte, Colonel Pellol and Josephine Baker. And, and they put in place a plan for the continuance of the flow of French in, of intelligence from France, should France fall, and they were convinced France would not stand against the Nazi blitzkrieg, and so Dunderdale ended up being, you know, one of Josephine's well, her key handler from London once France fell, and Dunderdale's private archives, so all of his wartime and pre-war and post-war private intelligence archive is held by a chap called Paul Biddle who happens to live in the States. And as I was researching the book over many years, Paul heard what I was doing. Uh, you know, our networks are, you know, overlap. And he reached out to me and said, would you like to have access to the Dunderdale, you know, family archive? <laughs> and I was like, yes, please, that'd be fantastic. And, you know, this man is such a legendary intelligence figure that to this day, in the training wing of the British Secret Service here in the UK, they have a mess, so, you know, where, where, where all the officers meet and and, and, and have their dinners. And on the large polished table in the secret intelligence service mess at the training wing is a silver bowl engraved with, with Wilfred Dunderdale, Commander Wilfred Dunderdale's name and all his honours. And he is there. It's a symbol of the inspiration they hope he can give to young agents. So mm -hmm. that's just a, you know, a, a small a selection of the kind of material that, that one um, you know, brought to bear to write the book. And then, of course, I was extremely fortunate in that I've got um, a very, very dear friend who is in his late 90s who served not only as a special forces uh, figure in the Second World War, but also as a sometimes intelligence operative. Hmm. And he knew of Josephine's story very well. And so he actually, believe it or not, read the manuscript at his advanced age for me in an early draft. 
and was able to give really fantastic feedback and comments. Oh wow! So that's a, that's a kind of World War Two perspective, which is which is in, invaluable. And then finally, for example, um, Jean-Pierre Reggiori, who was Josephine Baker's um, one of her dance partners after the war. And Jean-Pierre now lives in, in, in the States, in New York. A lovely man, so helpful. And he was able to talk to me about what Josephine was like as a performer. This magnetism she had on the stage, this incredible ability to reach out to her audience and touch every man and woman who was listening to her sing and watching her dance and make every single person feel special. That kind of quality, that magic that made her such a world-beating secret agent. And so from Jean-Pierre, you know, I was able to get a real sense of who she was as an individual and what made her such an amazing performer and such a world-beating spy. So you build up layer upon layer of information and and sources and from there you distill the story for the sake of our listeners let's concentrate a little bit on josephine baker why did she leave the states when did she leave the states and what did uh, how soon did she enter the theater life in paris and how big did she become yeah so josephine um Josephine grew up in, we, I mean, I pronounce it St. Louis. I think you pronounce it as St. Louis in the States. Is yes, that correct? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. It, 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 St. Louis would be the French pronounced or British pronounced. Anyway, so she grew up in, if you if bear with, forgive me, in St. Louis um, and <laughs> in the States, um, you know, in poverty um, and, uh, you know, left school at, in her early teens, 13 years old. Um, and the one thing she realized when she was in St. Louis was that she, she p- potentially had the talent as a dancer and a singer to make her living from you know from the stage Mm -hmm. and so you know realizing that new york was the only broadway was the only place to really break through trying to cut a long story short she eventually made her way to broadway in in her teens and got a part in a show on broadway very difficult very tough but over the over a teenage year she came to realize that because of segregation in the states she was never going to make it uh, on the stage as a singer or a dancer mm-hmm. if she stayed in America. And so when she was 19, she was approached by an impresario, a, a theatre agent, who was putting together a show in Paris called La Revue Negra, um, which was a kind of provocative, risky, um, you know, all-black show based upon, you know, the, 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 the kind of idea of the noble savage, if you like. Anyway, it was it, the, mm-hmm. the design of it was to take Paris by storm. And... Josephine was invited to play the star role, the star female role. And so she boarded a ship when she was 19 and sailed for Paris with a heart in her mouth, as you can imagine, never Mm. having left the USA, not knowing what the future held, seeking her fame and fortune. And the Revue Negra was a, it was, it bought the house down. It was, it was, it was a stunning success. There were some parts of Paris, some parts of Paris society were outraged, but by low and yeah, but by and large, reviews were incredibly positive and it took Paris and then the rest of Europe by storm. And so very quickly, within a matter of years, she became, in Europe at least, in London, in Paris, in, 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 in Amsterdam, in, in, in Copenhagen and in Berlin, across Germany, she became a standout superstar. You know, like one of these modern superstar figures that we understand today, but, but back then, you know, before the war. And, you know, she, as I say, she became the most photographed woman prior to the war. Um, instantly recognisable. She was um, a film on, star as well, too. I think some people don't realise that, right? She was the first black woman to get a starring role as a female in a movie. And yeah. she served, she, she starred in several movies. So star of stage, uh, you know, in terms of her singing voice and her, and, and her dancing. And then a movie star and also, you know, cut her own record. So really phenomenal as, as a performer. Um, and you know it was that talent it was that special gift that magic that she had which when the French secret intelligence service went to recruit her which was prior to the war they realized would make her would give her the ability to gather the kind of intelligence they were after yeah and her travels uh, and the and the people that she met or stayed at their mansions uh, heads of state ministers pashas I mean she either knew them or knew their their families well enough that they would she'd be invited to stay and so she could collect information or spread information almost anywhere in europe she had the perfect i mean you know if you're going to recruit you know what what they called honorable correspondents these were voluntary freelance spies who 
who carried out espionage because of you know patriotism because it was you know it was the right thing to do in this case they were fighting nazism um you know if you're going to rec- recruit those kind of people and, and and most intelligence services do the british had them i'm sure the americans did too then you need to find people who just don't just have the willing and the ability but also have the role in life the position which naturally makes them able to do so. So, for example, good candidates are journalists, for example, because they travel the world taking notes on what they see, but also performers, because Josephine had the perfect reason to go anywhere, to go to any capital city in the world with voluminous trunks full of all her tour costumes and her musical score sheets and to meet the high and mighty because she would be feted in embassies and at high society parties wherever she went and mm. that gave her this incredible into the world of espionage when was she first found uh, and tested by how do you pronounce it abti jacques abti yeah so um the french intelligence service realized uh, uh, that, that, um, one thing we need to be very clear about the french intelligence service were working hand in glove with the british so dunderdale abti mm. and pelol you know, this triumvirate working hand in glove to try and combat the Nazis. But they realised long before the outbreak of the war that they were fighting a losing battle. You know, French intelligence service and the British intelligence service had woefully um, cut budgets. So they were underfunded. They had very few agents. And the German intelligence service, the Abwehr, had a huge budget and was flooding France in particular with its agents and its spies. And so realising how um, up against it they were, they they sought out these honourable correspondents, these volunteers. It was the only way they could boost their manpower, as it were. And when somebody first suggested Josephine, it wasn't a popular suggestion. Uh, and there were several reasons for this. One, you know, back in that age, you know, 1937, 1938, uh, you know, women were not uh, seen as being, uh, uh, you know, uh, the stuff of secret agents uh, wrongly, of course. But that was the t- that was the time. That was the view. Uh, and more importantly, I guess, um, you know, in France in particular, you had the the First World War history of Matahari, who was a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a female stage performer who had been recruited for intelligence work in the First World War and had allegedly become a double agent and sold secrets to the Germans. So there was that legacy as well, which cast a dark shadow. And then, you know, Pelol and Abte and Dunderdale wondered, you know, and this is the phrase they use, was she the kind of high you know, high-flying celebrity who would shatter like glass at the first hint of any danger. Right. And so when Abte was tasked to go and recruit her, he was sceptical, very sceptical. Uh, but he drove out to her, her chateau uh, in Paris, at, uh, in, 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 a, in a district called Le Vecinet, a very um, well-to-do district. The chateau was called Le Beauchene, uh, expecting to meet, you know, this beautiful, glamorous female in a ball gown, dripping in jewels, <laughs> probably with her cheetah on the leash, her cheetah, Chiquita, which was one of her classic images uh, on the stage and around Paris. And actually, when he drove through the gates and rolled to a stop and wound the window down of the car, he heard a voice from the garden saying hello. And he looked over and there was a figure dressed in a battered felt cap, a pair of gardening trousers and, and a battered old shirt <laughs> with a can, a rusty tin can full of snails in her hand. And what <laughs> yeah. Josephine had, and what Josephine had been doing, she'd been out in the garden, the, the, the grounds of a chateau, collecting snails to feed to her ducks, because she was a huge lifelong lover of animals. And in fact, animals, of course, were a big part of a stage act, and the snails were to feed to her ducks. <laughs> that, was good, that was a good scene in your book. I enjoyed that. <laughs> fabulous, fabulous yeah. scene. And Josephine led Jack into the chateau and they, you know, she, the butler bought champagne and they sat in front of the fireplace. And of course, how do you recruit an honourable correspondent? You don't just like walk in and say, would you like to be an honourable correspondent as your force, your first opening line? It isn't like that. You've got to kind of like sit down and make small talk and sound them out. And so they did. And very quickly, what Abte realised was that she was treating him to that magic, that magic that she could project from the stage to every single member of her audience to make every single one of them think she was performing specifically and specially for him or for her. Abte was suddenly treated to a slice of that up close and personal. And mm-hmm. he suddenly started to realise, boy, if we can bring this lady on side, and if she can really deliver this to the kind of targets we have in mind, you know, she's going to be world beating. And so he popped the question, you know, um, obviously I'm here on semi-official business and we are seeking honorable correspondence and a response which you know struck him and you know really set them on their course as these partners not just during the war in espionage but through life really supporting each other 
her response was, you know, France and Paris has given me everything. I'm willing to give this country and the cause my life. Uh, you know, you can say words are cheap and they're easy to, to um, you know, to, to pronounce and possibly, you know, uh, there may be nothing in it. So, yes, she, she had her first testing and she was given her first espionage mission. And that was, at that stage, Britain, France and the Allies had no idea what Mussolini, the fascist dictator in Italy and, and, and Italy would do come the outbreak of war would they stay neutral would they would they support the allies highly unlikely but would they join hitler which was the fear in, in an axis and so josephine was tasked with finding out what the intentions were of, of, of the of italy of, of fascist italy once and if war was declared that was her first testing yeah that that's an amazing story could you share a little bit of that yeah, so, I mean, Josephine um, had performed in Italy prior to the war and she had been seduced, not physically, but um, certainly emotionally uh, by by Mussolini. She saw him as this strong man and this figure that perhaps Italy needed. Um, she ruled the day, of course, mm-hmm. uh, you know, once war broke out and realised what his true intentions were. But because she had befriended Mussolini and, and become celebrated in, in, in Italian high society, she had a brilliant in with the Italian embassy in Paris. And so she used her contacts there. In fact, she seduced, probably physically, one doesn't know, but certainly mentally, the air attaché at the Italian embassy. And from him, by provoking him and contradicting him in that incredible, wily way she had, she was able to elucidate the true intentions of the Italian state, which, of course, was that they had already cut a deal with Hitler, that when war was declared, Italy would be fighting on the side of Nazi Germany. And that was the first intelligence that she passed across to Abte. Uh, and then, of course, it went to, you know, his superiors throughout Paris to, to London and further afield. And we realised that, uh, you know, that that alliance was going to be struck just as soon as war was declared. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. And so there's many instances throughout this book, listeners, where she actually provided some incredible intelligence to the Allies. I mean, just because of her contacts. And the story goes into areas you wouldn't even believe, but she was able to make contacts and, and provide information that was good and strong, that really did help the Allies uh, beat Germany. Um, and at, at times when her, when her closest comrades in the espionage service were getting weak knees, she was the one who showed spine. Uh, can you absolutely. bring up a great example of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, you asked me earlier on what, what, what kind of drew you to the story. Well, one of the things that drew me to the story was that when you study the pronouncements of those key agents that were wrapped around her, they were all male, you know, all men, uh, all long experience. These were, these were long experience, long in the tooth spies who'd played the espionage game for years Every single one of them at some stage reached the point where he believed France was beaten and that the Allies were beaten and that Nazi Germany had won the war. Josephine never did for one moment. She never even doubted. Or if she did, she kept it to herself. And mm-hmm. so whenever those other figures, Pelol, Abte, Adunderdale even, whenever they expressed their doubts, whenever they lost their hope... She was the one who shored them up and basically said, America will join the war. You have never seen what the Americans are capable of. Once America joins, the war is won. And that's all we're waiting for. Don't give up hope. And so she shored them up. And because of her um, because of her celebrity status and because people still needed to be entertained, even at the height of the war, even at the height of the, the, the march of Nazism, People still needed to be entertained, perhaps more so. She was still in demand, particular, particularly in neutral countries like, like Portugal or Spain or, or further afield. And because of that, she could still travel widely. And she had visas, which meant she could travel to places carrying dossiers, dossiers of intelligence for the Secret Intelligence Service. And later, of course, directly to the Americans in Washington. But also she could go to those places and gather intelligence. And that's exactly what she did. So even when she was flying solo, when her former spy masters, Abte and Pelol, could no longer go to those places, they were stuck because they had no means to travel. Josephine continued. And so, as I say, she started off being their understudy. 
and she ended up being their teacher. And that's one of the most fabulous kind of developing character stories of the book is that she goes on this journey in the war, which is not just a physical journey, but it's an emotional journey and a, and a journey into the heart of the world and the craft of espionage. Yeah, you did a good job of putting that all together. I had a question for you about William Bippy Dunderdale, which was Ian Fleming's prototype for, for James Bond. And let me know if I'm getting his character right from, from how I perceived it. I saw him as a, a guy who drives an expensive car. Uh, he, has, he uses personal tailors. He's always dressed to the nines. He's kind of an out there guy. Uh, how did he survive the German abwehr, um, being that as he was outgoing as he was? Or, or, or am I reading him wrong? No, you, you're not reading him wrong. Um, so Dunderdale was like Bond. I mean, you know, Bond, you know, the cigarette holder, the champagne, the fantastic clothes, the women. I mean, you know, the amazing cars. Dunderdale was was cut from the same cloth. And as, as, as I said, you know, he's a model that Fleming used for Bond. They knew each other during the war, but it was deliberate. That's the fascinating thing. Oh, it was a character he was creating. It was deliberate. He created that yeah. character to draw people in. It was almost like Josephine Stardom, okay? You'd yeah. think, how could she be a spy because of a stardom? It's impossible. Actually, that was her cloak and dagger. Her spardom, uh, her very stardom was her cloak and dagger. Dunderdale used that kind of panache, that high society status to draw people in. That, that was one of his key secrets as a successful agent. And then underneath that, just like Josephine, just like that scene I described to you at the chateau where she emerges with the snails, she had this hard, tough, down-to-earth, street fighter side of her, which is completely different from the mm -hmm. public image of the ball gangs and the jewels. She was a tough cookie. She could survive in nightclubs with gangsters. She'd survived on the streets of St. Louis. She didn't take prisoners when she had to. Dunderdale was the same. You know, he earned that nickname Biffy, which is, a you know... It, it strikes us as being a bit silly now. You can you can but, say it through clenched teeth, and you'd be you'd, be, you'd probably be right on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, you couldn't make it up. But he Biffy. earned that nickname Biffy because I don't even have the same phrase in the states, but there's a phrase in the UK. It's an old phrase to biff someone. It means to punch them, and he earned it because he was a punchy guy in his youth. He was a great boxer. So Dunderdale also had this core of steel and and pugnacity inside of him and it's typified in that first mission he's given which is you know beggar's belief he wasn't even part of the secret intelligence service he's serving as a teenager you know on a ship on a british warship in the first world war and at the end of the first world war we realize that there's a load of mini submarines which america sold to russia when russia was still an ally there's been the russian revolution it's falling to communism what's going to end what's going to happen to those mini submarines dunderdale is sent in as a teenager into odessa to find out because he was schooled there his, his father was a shipping magnate and was based there and he's sent in in his school uniform to find out what's happened to these mini submarines he pulls off the mission finds out and then he's part of the team sent in to sabotage them and make sure they're never used. So Dunderdale, beneath that debonair, you know, um, flashy exterior, he was a he was a tough guy. And, and that, done. you know, yeah. it's that duality which made him, uh, you know, made him able to survive and made him such a standout intelligence operative, not just through the war, but before the war and long after. Explain Mickey Sawada and the Japanese connection. Yeah, so Miki Sawada was the um, the daughter of of, of the uh, Mitsubishi uh, car vehicle machinery empire in Japan, and her husband was the ambassador first first in America, Japanese ambassador in America, but then uh, before the war and during the war in 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 Paris. And Mickey was a huge fan of Josephine's, and they had met and they'd befriended each other, and actually they befriended each other mostly. When Josephine, and she did this purely out of the goodness of her heart, she would drive into the Paris tenements, the slums of Paris, so where the desperately poor lived, in her Delange motor car, this incredibly luxury motor car, piled full of boxes of basically food and clothes and baby, you know, baby stuff and aid, and basically go into these tenements and deliver all this aid and help 
the, the poor and starving of Paris. And of course, you know, she did that because she'd been brought up in poverty herself. And actually, you know, it's one of the themes of her life. She couldn't abide to see the poor suffer. And one day, Mickey, who was, of course, le le led a very refined life, being, you know, the daughter of the Mitsubishi Empire and uh, married to the Japanese ambassador. One day, Mickey asked if she could come with her. And, and Josephine said, you really don't want to come. You know, this is not what you want to see of Paris. And Mickey insisted. And so they went in together. And from that moment onwards, they were the best of friends. And so when for her next kind of major espionage role, again, before the outbreak of war, um, Abte asked her to find out from the from, from the Japanese embassy certain elements of intelligence that needs to needed to, to to secure. Basically, it also pertained to what the Japanese intentions would be once war broke out. But also, there had been a there'd been a traitor in within the French aeronautics, so aeroplane industry, who was trying to pass top secret designs of French warplanes to the Japanese. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to find out more about that that French traitor. And so again, Josephine used her contact. She used Mickey Sawada to get her into the embassy to find out that information and pass it across to the Allies. So, you know, these were um these were these were live espionage missions where she was tasked to yeah. find something out of key importance that we needed to know and she delivered. These were real gets. I mean it's yeah. not easy. Look at the at the scope of those assignments and phew, not an easy get. We'll return with our interview with Damian Lewis, Agent Josephine, American beauty, French hero, British spy, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. I've learned a lot from this book. One of the things I learned, I had a friend in college named Wolfram. Never knew that the, that the name had any other meaning or had any meaning at all until, until your book uh, and found out that Wolfram is a, is it a mineral? or a type of chemical that the Germans needed uh, to, in order to uh, strengthen their armor. Is that correct? Yeah, so Wolfram, also known as tungsten, is one of the ah. heaviest heaviest and hardest metals known to man. It's It's got pretty much the same molecular weight as gold. In fact, if you wanted to, um, to uh, forge a gold bar, one of the best one of the most effective ways to do so is to get a, a chunk of wolfram coat it in gold and that is pretty much the same molecular weight but the other point about wolfram is because it's so heavy and so hard it's perfect for for coating bunker busting bombs bombs or armor piercing rounds it's ah. crucial crucial for, for the for the armaments industry to this day in fact um the only other metal that can be used really is depleted uranium which has its has real problems you know so during the war there was a kind of sub-war, particularly in Europe, which was called the Wolfram War. And this was the battle to get supplies of Wolfram, and it was waged between Germany and, and Great Britain and the Allies, of course. And the key supplier of Wolfram was Portugal, Portugal because yep. Portugal has a lots of natural deposits. And so there was this clandestine underground war waged on Portuguese soil, but further afield, to try to stop the Germans getting it and secure it for us. And just to give you a kind of flavour of that, the Germans, the Nazis, as you know, you know, they they plundered Europe. They mm -hmm. plundered the nations they had taken over, not just the Jews, but they plundered wherever they could. And they stole art, you know, priceless artworks, jewelry, gold, bullion, uh, the, the 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 treasuries of the countries they overtook were, were plundered. And a lot of that, a significant amount of that plundered wealth ended up going to Portugal on these secret ghost trains. So from France, for example, through Spain into Portugal to pay for Wolfram because the Germans were desperately in need. Yeah, and they, so were packing, they were packing gold bullion on, on, on mules, right? Shipping it across the right. mountains to Portugal. Yep, yep. So that, they, that there were smuggling routes to take, to take Wolfram on muleback uh, through the Portuguese mountains from Spain uh, in, into Portugal to pay for and then bring Wolfram back the other way. To, to to you know to, uh, pro to 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 provide to the German armaments industry. So this was just one of the many clandestine wars of the shadow that were fought in 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 the Second World War. Now, when when Germany stormed into Paris uh, and took control basically of all of northern France, uh, that became the Vichy government. Is that correct? Yeah. So and then so, southern France was still free France. Yeah. So so so. Paris fell in, in June 1940, and you know pretty much all of France was 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 destined to fall. It was clear that the French military could not hold. 
And so, an armistice was signed by Pétain, the, uh, the, the, the French president, sorry, prime minister, who yep. took over after the fall of Paris. So an armistice was signed with Nazi Germany. And that armistice basically divided France into two parts. The northern half, and the, including the western coastline, so pretty much all the French, the French coastline, bar the southern coast, became occupied by the Germans. And it was ruled by, by the Germans from Paris and from Berlin. The southern half of France, so the southern coastline and the southern half of France, was ruled by the French from the town of Vichy, which is this spa town uh, in, in, in the mountains. And that was where Marshal Pantin set up what became known as his Vichy government. So those were the, those were the, that was the kind of fault line in France once it had fallen to Nazi Germany. But for the French intelligence service, for the, for the deuxième bureau, for Jacques Abte and Paul Pellol, for those people who were handling Josephine Baker, suddenly they were in disarray because their, their intentions, their plans to save all their precious files, all their files, all their agent details, you know, absolutely crucial to running an intelligence service. All their plans had fallen apart because no one, not in their wildest dreams, had ever foreseen France falling so quickly. Mm. You know, Germany, Nazi Germany achieved in a matter of weeks what it had failed to do in four years, four years or more of the First World War. And so because of that, after France had fallen and once it was split into, into Vichy France and, and northern occupied France, occupied by the Nazis, to give you an indication of how dire things were, the British Secret Intelligence Service in London had not a single agent or a single source or a single wireless station transmitting intelligence back to Britain across the whole of France. The wow. entire nation had fallen dark and silent. And it was so dire that in June 1940, just days after Dunkirk, you know, the Allies suffering cataclysmic defeat in France, the British army being rescued from the jaws of shame and destruction from the French beaches and brought back to the UK. Just days after that defeat, Churchill called a meeting of his intelligence chiefs and said, I don't care what it takes. I don't care how you do it. I need people back in France and we need agents on the ground to gather intelligence because if we don't have that, the war is lost. It was June of 1940 that uh, Baker did a show in Marseille, is that correct? That was in December uh, oh. 1940, yeah, yeah, okay. December, December 1940. December 1940. Yeah. Prior to that, she had been out of show business for a while, is that correct? And this kind of brought her back in? Yeah, so basically, Josephine, in again, a standout element of her story, she, of course, you know, as as France was invaded, she could have done what many Americans did and, and went to the American embassy in Paris and said, look, give me a visa, stamp my passport, get me back to the States. She could have fled to safety. She chose to stay and fight. She chose to stay and fight. It's crucial we understand that. And, and being mm -hmm. the, the superstar she was, she'd have been at the front of the queue to get back to America. She did not flee to safety. And being a black woman of such high profile, who was already identified by the Nazi state as an enemy of the Nazi state, mm -hmm. who had already been on the front of pamphlets written by Joseph Goebbels, the, the chief propagandist in chief of Hitler. You know, she'd already been on, on pamphlets issued by... Uh, printed by him as being an enemy of the Nazi state, she could have chosen to flee to the state. She did not. She chose to stay and fight. But she pledged that as long as there was a, 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 a Nazi in France, she would never perform again. By December 1940, she was persuaded to break that pledge for two reasons. The first was that she had she'd, she'd left France with war-winning intelligence for the Allies. She'd smuggled it through to Portugal on perhaps the most extraordinary mission of her whole espionage career. I mean, her trunks, you know, her performance trunks, she was she was going to Portugal to perform, that was her cover. Her performance trunks were full, packed full of intelligence, you know, photographs, documents, key intelligence written in secret ink on, on, on the musical score sheets in her, in her luggage. And with her star performance, she managed to bluff her way through all the Gestapo checkpoints, all the, all the customs checkpoints and get through to Lisbon, deliver it to the British embassy where there was a secret intelligence service cell from where they spirited it back to London. But after that, Dunderdale said from London, please go back into France 
and continue to run this pipeline of intelligence for us, continue this flow. And so when she returned to France, she went to Marseille in southern France, where Pelol, her boss from the Deuxième Bureau, was based. And Pelol said to her, Josephine, you must perform. And she said, no, I, I will not perform until all the Nazis left France. Said, Josephine, you must perform. And he said, you must perform for two reasons. First of all, if you don't perform, your cover is blown. Mm -hmm. If you don't perform, the Nazis will know for sure who you are and what you stand for. You have to perform because that's your cover. It's your cloak and dagger. And second, you have to perform because you need the money. Because another key standout part of her story was Josephine throughout the war so from 19 well even before the war so from before the war through to the end 1945 she served for that whole time and she refused to be paid not only did she refuse to be paid but often she was funding her own intelligence operations from her own coffers so she basically bankrupted herself she was a very wealthy woman prior to the war and she basically used up all her, her, her wealth during the war to fund the resistance and the cause, you know, and, and she said, you know, many times over uh, during the war, you know, she 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 left America. She left the state. She left New York because she couldn't be free there. She couldn't achieve her her potential. You know, she, she could not become all the things she hungered to become. She'd be, she'd been allowed to do that in Paris and across France and across Europe. But if Nazi Germany won, if 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 the if the Reich became the Reich that Hitler intended and and, and spread across the world, include including America, of course, then where could she then flee to, to to experience that freedom and to be herself? And so actually, she had no choice but to fight, and you know she gave her wealth and her 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 you know resources freely for that reason. So it, it was a, it was a hard hard time for a lot of the French. Question it was indeed. You. Who were, yeah. who were Murphy's 12 Apostles? Right, so Murphy's 12 Apostles were um, the first foreign intelligence agents of America in the Second World War. How did they come about? So Churchill was adamant from an early, uh, from, from an early stage in the war that American Britain and, and the rest of the Allies should land first in terms of their first major amphibious landing in North Africa. He was adamant that, that if we took North Africa, that would be the springboard to then launch further um, amphibious assaults and liberate Europe. So, so North Africa was the springboard. And he lobbied Roosevelt to that effect. And, and that, of course, became the mission, uh, the, the amphibious landing, the greatest amphibious operation of the war prior to D-Day. Uh, codenamed Operation Torch. Mm -hmm. But Roosevelt, of course, like Churchill, wanted intelligence. Of course, if he was going to go against his, his commanders-in-chief who did not want to uh, undertake Torch because the logistics, the challenges were legion. Imagine it. You've got to launch and mount tens of thousands of men and, 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 and tens of thousands of tons of war material and hundreds of ships from America to North Africa, largely from the States, directly to North Africa, braving U-boat-infested seas, somehow getting there without the Germans realising what you're up to. It was it was an, a gargantuan logistical challenge. And many of uh, Roosevelt's you know, commander chiefs argued it would be far easier just to launch our ships from the British shores, cross the Channel, and, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and launch landings into Western Europe. But Churchill said, no, it's got to be torched. And Roosevelt was brought on side as well. But Roosevelt wanted intelligence. He wanted transparency and knowledge about North Africa and what they're up against. And so the 12 apostles were 12 individuals of varying different backgrounds. Very few of them had any intelligence uh, prior experience at all. One was a real estate agent. Another was several of them were veterans of the First World War. One was a hunter of antiquities, a kind of modern Indiana Jones. And they mm. were recruited by um, Murphy, the um, the, the American diplomat uh, in North Africa and on Roosevelt at Roosevelt's behest. And they're recruited by Murphy to go to North Africa and pose as diplomats, as consuls, but actually work as intelligence operatives, gathering in the key information that, that Roosevelt and his military commanders needed to make torch possible. 
So what what was that information? So it's things like, okay, of course, enemy defences, air bases, um, gun emplacements, harbours, warships, landing beaches, tides, the strength of, of, of the seas on those landing beaches, the intentions of the locals, in particular the Berber chiefs, would they come on side? Would they stand against an American and British landing or would they support all the key intelligence that you needed to make landings of that kind of scope possible? And in seeking that intelligence, they very quickly were brought to Josephine Baker and Jacques Abte's door because Josephine, having performed in Marseille, uh, having performed um, La Creole, the opera, mm-hmm. to great success uh, to maintain her cover, was actually warned by, by Paleol shortly thereafter. So we're talking the end of 1941, the Gestapo are coming for you. You're on their hit list. They know what you're up to. And so she had to flee France and she fled to North Africa. She ended up in Marseille with with, with Jacques Abte. And that's where they rebuilt their intelligence network. And so the 12 apostles very quickly realized that in terms of an intelligence asset, the best they had going was Josephine Baker and her partner Jacques Abte, because not only was she building up this fantastic, fabulous intelligence network, but because of who she was, she was fated again across North Africa, and she had connections to the very highest levels. You're the Pasha of Marrakesh. Uh, she she stayed at the um, at his what castle or whatever it was he had. Yeah. So the Lord of the Atlas, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, El Glaoui, you know, he became one of her many, many high level contacts. Who, you know, priceless intelligence was 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 passed across from them. Your your story does a good job of explaining the vicious underground war that was taking place in Morocco. And, it, of course, that brought back memories to me of Casablanca, what a good job that movie did of trying to portray the division there uh, between the Vichy government and the Free French government. She had those connections with the Moroccan elite that really did help to provide important intelligence for the Allied invasion. Is that correct? Completely, completely true. And, you know, not only did they pass across you know, world-beating intelligence. And this, of course, was where, um, via the apostles, Abte and Josephine were, were now passing intelligence. So it would go from, from largely from Casablanca or Marrakesh in, in Morocco. It would go often by wireless if it was a short snippet of intelligence. But if it was anything longer, it would go by diplomatic bag, which, of course, the apostles had access to because they were officially diplomats, although the Germans and the Italians knew exactly who they were and were hunting them. But they had access to diplomatic bags. And so that intelligence they were gathering would go in diplomatic bags organized by the apostles. It would be spirited to London and from there copied directly to Washington. So by mid-1943, early 1943, Josephine and Jacques Abte were serving not only as agents for Free France and for London, but also for Washington. So for the key allied powers. And to give you an indication of how successful they were, one of those apostles standout character in the book and one one of the 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 key handlers for josephine and jack during this period said to them when he was recalled to washington shortly before the torch invade in invasion he came to visit them and he said america will never forget what you've done for her that was the caliber of information they were gathering Mm, mm, mm. explain how dunderdale got his hands on the first enigma machines (laughs) Yeah, so, um, of course, Nazi Germany um, believed that via the Enigma encoding machine, which looks like a large typewriter, it's an electromechanical device. Uh, in fact, I, 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 they're very rare, and you would pay a very large amount of money to buy an Enigma these days. But I was very lucky about two weekends ago launching this book, in fact, in the UK. Uh, I was at a venue in, 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 in the UK uh, Malvern College, and and they had they bought a real live four rotor Enigma to that venue. I was actually a, actually able to see it and touch it and wow. have it explained in great detail. So the Enigma was was used for encoding military uh, traffic uh, radio messages, and the Germans believed it to be unbreakable, uh, and and with good reason. It, it, you know the number of combinations that the Enigma can produce is is beyond you know my ken and and, and most people's understanding, but. The Polish, many years before the outbreak of the war, 
an Enigma machine had been sent in in the post and it it went via Poland for whatever reason. It was on its way to Germany and the Polish managed to intercept it, unpack the parcel over a weekend, copy it, parcel it back up and send it on to Germany. So the Polish built the first copycat Enigma machine, which and they, and they also captured or copied some German code books. So that enabled them to start breaking the Enigma codes. The Polish were the first to do it. And very early on, Dunderdale was liaising from Paris to Poland, working with the Polish codebreakers. And so when Poland fell in 1939, the first, you know, the trigger of the Second World War, mm-hmm. the actual cadre, the, 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 the circle of Polish codebreakers came to Paris with their Enigma machines and set up their codebreaking apparatus and an and outfit in Paris in a chateau, courtesy of French intelligence and working closely with Dunderdale. And then, of course, when Paris fell, or shortly before Paris fell, Dunderdale realised that unless those enigmas were spirited to Britain, they were going to you know, fall back into enemy hands. And so he persuaded the French, who had worked very closely with, let me take them to London before the Nazis get their hand on them. Let's carry on the work in London of what, of what has been pioneered in, in, in Poland and, and, and latterly in Paris. And that's exactly what happened. And those machines and the code books were the key breakthroughs which were taken to Bletchley Park which was the enigma code breaking apparatus in Britain which which actually you know had such a key role in changing the course of World War II and bear in mind you know the level of secrecy involved in in the enigma it had the highest security classification on, of any secret material in the war it had the classification called ultra so any enigma uh, intelligence was marked ultra and it was the existence of the enigma machine the copies and the code breaking was only known to churchill and a very few of his top co- military commanders and politicians and intelligence officials and shared of course with with roosevelt and a few top figures in the usa so dunderdale's breakthrough role in getting that enigma to the uk was another you know key chapter in changing the course of the war. I'm going to ask you your toughest question of the interview. And that's and I know because you're a filmmaker that uh, you see things when you write and because of the how excellent this book is that you see this taking place in your head while you're writing it and you can you can communicate that to the reader which is a it's an art and you do very well at it. How would you open how would you open the multi-series movie should that become a reality what scene would you open it with <laughs> golly that's a tough one <laughs> <laughs> thought i'd put you on the spot <laughs> i think i would open it with um with josephine probably taking the first intelligence dossier to lisbon because that story is just so incredible you know at that point in the war, the lowest point in the war, June, July, August, September 1940, when Germany's poised to invade Britain, you know, the Blitz is beginning, the Battle of Britain is under, the whole of Western Europe largely has fallen. Everyone believes the war is lost. And Josephine, you know, regardless, and Jacques Abte get, you know, get on the train and start traveling with all her tour trunks stuffed full of this war winning intelligence, you know, pictures of the invasion craft. Yeah. You know, details of the Luftwaffe air bases, the list of the German agents they'd inserted into Britain, you know, details of, of trying to use Ireland as a backdoor to invade the UK, details of, of, of the invasion plans to get to seize Gibraltar. That journey, you know, across borders, through checkpoints, which she pulls off because everywhere in her furs and her jewels, she glitters as a star and everyone is starstruck and no one can conceive she might be actually spiriting war-winning intelligence through that for me you know is is one of the takeout moments of the story and from there you'd backtrack to the beginning you know you'd like yeah. flashback to to several years earlier yeah um i think that's you know, a, that'd be a good place to do it everything was on the table then it was it was all risk and it, and it meant death if they were caught and they it meant, had to... it, it meant worse than death because you know bear in mind that oh, yeah. if you were caught uh, involved in those kind of activities and people were an American woman spied for, for the Allies who lived in Germany before the war. Okay, she stayed in Germany and spied for the Allies. She was caught 
and she was executed at Hit on Hitler's personal orders. Yeah. And bear in mind, the Gestapo had decided that you know, even prior to the war, if they caught spies, they, they, spies in Nazi Germany were beheaded. That's how you were punished for being a spy. But they would not behead them in the normal way, which is that you would lie face downwards and the guillotine would come down without you seeing it. They would make you lie face upwards yes. so you'd see it coming down to behead you. So if they had been captured, terrible things would have followed. The whole process of the war affected Josephine in a lot of ways, but it really took a hard hit on her health. Not only was there the risk of death constantly a factor for years in, in her situation, but her health also was failing. How would you describe that toughness, and, and, uh, and where did she get her inspiration for it? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, Josephine risked her life every time she was involved in an espionage mission, and that was, that was you know, for, for, for the majority of the war. And not just a life, you know, she would have suffered horrendous consequences had she been captured and, 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 and exposed. But on top of that, the stress and the strain of repeated back-to-back -back, uh, intelligence operations, you know, from 19, before the war, so from 1938 through to 45, hmm. that cumulative toll really hit her hard. Um, and so... You know, there's a period in the book, uh, it, it's the Casablanca, the North Africa period, where, you know, for months on end, she is fighting death. She's yes. battling death. She's on death's door. And this is the phrase that all of the, those people who love and care for her and work with her, Jacques Apte, Paul, Colonel Paul Pellol and others say, you know, that, that she's being stalked by the Grim Reaper. And so many people who've read the book have said to me, why did she not at some stage just say enough is enough? I've done my part. I've, I've more than given given my all you know I, i've more than made my sacrifice and why does she not just say um get me on a plane or get me on a ship back to the states and let me recuperate it's it's a tough question to answer i mean she was a fighter in her heart and her soul you know she fought all her life and 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 this was her greatest fight her greatest battle that's for sure um and and, and that's why you know she was always so proud of the war years it wasn't in her nature to step aside, to turn aside. And, you know, she, she never even intimated that that might be the way she, she was minded to go. In fact, quite the reverse. Just to give you one example of how she could have made things easier on herself, but she did not because of her principles. So late 1943 in North Africa, Operation Torch has happened. It's a massive success. The American forces are now in North Africa ready for the next stage to take the whole of North Africa and the landings in Europe. And she's approached by the American military and they say, look, you know, we want you to sign this contract to sign up to be a performer to boost the morale of American troops for the rest of the war because she was this absolutely electri electrifying performer. And she'd already given, you know, concerts for the troops. And she said no. And bear in mind, she would have been handsomely paid for the rest of the war and, and ferried around and looked after very well, and royally, in fact. And she said, no. She said, I can't sign that because while I will perform for American troops, of course, to the nth of my, my ability, I have to be free to perform for every allied soldier who's fighting the Nazi, no matter what nationality they might be. And mm -hmm. I will never be paid. And right. I will never be paid. And so, you know, she not only refused to step aside, but she repeatedly gave everything she could to ensure that she, um, you know, st stayed, stayed true to the cause. And that is one of the most remarkable things, one of the key takeouts from her story. Well, her story is incredible. Listeners, remember the name of the story is Agent Josephine, American Beauty, French Hero, British Spy by Damien Lewis. And Damien, when does this hit the bookshelves? Uh, it's early July, so just in 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 uh, a short while, and uh, yeah, you know, it's um, it's it, it's it's a, it's a real honour, I have to say, to be able to have, you know, been able to tell this story. It's it's one that's, that I feel very close to, and uh, you know, I I am honoured to be able to bring this to to an American readership. It's a blockbuster. You've done a great job with it. This story is going to become a this story is going to become a series, no doubt about it. So you've already been successful in your life with a number of films and a number of great books. 
this one will be uh, one of your best. Her story, where you have where you have some celebrities who might have dipped their toe in the water with regard to espionage or services during the war. She jumped in the pool and she put her life at risk, like you said, for seven to eight years against the Nazi powers. Uh, just an incredible, incredible person. And uh, the sacrifices she was willing to make and the fact that she had so much spine and courage uh, that inspired other Frenchmen and allies as well um, is just an incredible story. And you've done a great job with it. I want to thank you very much. I know our listeners will want to get the book, Agent Josephine. Thank you so much, Damien. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, that was brilliant. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm very honored and privileged to have a chance to, to speak with you about this book and about no, the no, work that you do. No, no, it's fabulous. And it's really good to talk to someone who has shares the passion. You know, it's, um, yeah, like I say, I, I, I'm, I'm so excited that we can, we can bring the story to an American readership. That's very special, you know. <laughs>